Hello, everybody, and welcome to the broadcast. I'm your host, Greg Bendian, bringing you in-depth discussions of things musical and, and creative. Now we've been doing this for, I guess this is uh, our 16th episode, and uh, many, many creative and fascinating artists. The artist that we are going to be speaking with today has been active in the music scene for well over 50 years and has such a uh, incredibly diverse background. She's a vocalist, a vocal artist, I would say, a composer, an educator, an innovator, and she's comfortable with standards of jazz all the way up to free improvisation and contemporary classical composition. Uh, everything in between. Uh, I'm so pleased to welcome my guest, Jay Clayton. Hi, Jay. Hi. Th thanks for having me. Yep. I guess the the operative word is eclectic. Yes. <laughs> it's a good. I mean, I accepted that over the years. You know, I accept it. You know, accept it. I just I just say because years ago it's like wow, what you know I became uh, famous in my work. I say famous. I have a good reputation. I don't know about fame. But uh, as a as an avant garde, but that that but just I'm so glad that you introduced me as someone who I I love the standards. But my first CD under my name was that one Jay Clayton All Out. I don't know if you have that, mm -hmm. you, you know. And so that yeah, it's like it's interesting. I don't know. I'm jumping right in, but it's interesting to me about who the heck I am, you know. But when I, that was the first, I had recorded before with other groups, you know, but that was under my first name. And so the question is, that's my first one. So I just always do what I'm doing now. And that's certain, in other words, rather, you know, should I do a standard one? You know, anyway, I got lots of stories. <laughs> oh, God. Well, but that's, a, you know, to stay on that point for a minute, was it that you were just always interested in a lot of things? Do singers get offered a lot of different things? Good singers, uh, do good singers have to be well-versed in many different areas? What is your take, Jay? Oh yeah, no, uh, I wasn't offered anything. Okay, let me just put it that way. That isn't how it happened. I, I'm not one of the singers that get, you know, say, I would like this and I would like that. I never been, that's, that's, I, I'll tell you my short story because I'm always curious too, you know, about my colleagues. But how did you? What? How, how did you get? Uh, what are you doing? I'm a little girl from Ohio, you know, Youngstown, Ohio. So it's like I, I. But I grew up with. I didn't know they were jazz standards. My mother used to sing these tunes around the house. It was the pop music. Mm -hmm. She she sounded like Billie Holiday, but she never heard of Billie Holiday really. I mean, she knew, you know, she didn't know that was the word jazz, whatever. But but. Uh, so I, you know, when when I actually ended up singing as a jazz singer, I didn't have to learn a lot of those tunes, you know. But I, but anyway, the way I just, I, I, I maybe there's a book you'll write. I mean, I always ask my students, what was your first experience with jazz that you even knew anything about it, you know? And uh, for me, it was in 19. I know when it was. It was I, I graduated from high school in '59. And so you have to understand, at the, the end of the 50s, they were still playing standards at the dances. It was before the rock and roll, you know, it was like, whoa. Yes. And, and I, I'm going to jump around a bit. Just stop me if I jump too much. But I'm with you. But my point was, 
the first time I ever sat in, I mean, sat in, who would even, what the heck is that? I, what was that? You know, I went to a dance. I'm just remembering this now. And Frank Sinatra was a very, I mean, they, my family, they didn't play a lot of music, but Frank Sinatra, you bet. I always went. And you grew up Italian, right? Yeah, I'm Italian descent. I'm second generation. All my grandparents were born there, you know. So yeah, Frank. So I, I was at a dance. I don't, I, I can picture it. So we're talking 1959, you do the math, or 58 or 59. I can picture it in my mind, this dance, people are dancing there, and there's a band playing the standards to dance to. And I asked if I could sit in. Now, I don't know if I used those words. And it was the first time I, with the microphone. I just remembered as my, I know that had to have been the first time. <clears throat> and I did Moonlight in Vermont. Uh, which is which I haven't done since, and I should because I teach in Vermont. You know, every summer Sheila Jordan and I do this, you know, camp. And I said, and I'll come back in at the bridge, like I knew what a bridge was. Even why would I know that? But I'll tell you what happened was, probably prior to that, I don't know. I have a cousin who was a year older than me. <clears throat> We all took piano, you know, I don't know. I, I just saw somebody's, I, I love watching interviews, by the way, and I'm gonna go back and watch a bunch of yours. I love it, because you find out so much about, you know, um, and uh, I forget who it was. Um, and they said that, you know, they took piano, everybody took piano, you know. But anyway, my cousin, I, I was, again, I can visualize it. We always, this was, it's a big Italian family, but this particular sister of my mother, we all, they were like, that was our social life, we'd go have dinner over there. Anyway, I was leaving the house, like, and my cousin was, Ronnie was at the, at the door, and he handed me three albums. And he also had a fake book. What the heck was that, you know? So he, he already was somewhat into it. And he handed me these three albums, and it was Dave Brubeck, Ramsey Lewis, and and Miles. Which Miles? I think it was I I, I want I it wasn't it might have been Miles at the Blackhawk. That's that's what I'm thinking because I know it wasn't Miles Ahead because I think that was later anyway. And I don't even remember uh, the Dave Brubeck and the Ramsey Lewis. And again, I didn't know. You know, I didn't know the word jazz so much, you know, maybe Dizzy Gillespie, I don't know. But anyway, that was it. I listened to those. I was totally, what is this? And so I joined the Columbia Record Company cl Club for a penny. I mean, I, how did I even know about that? And, and, and I ticked off jazz. So every month I got it, Ellington, and all of a sudden, so that was the beginning of it. And I so, he passed my cousin, but I, I, through the years, I always wanted to thank him because that was it. So now what do I do? I'm a little girl in Ohio, right? Mm. And, uh, and, and I was just telling one of my students this, I went to college, you know, and, and um, but no, everybody didn't go to college. I didn't even know what college was. But these people would come to our high school and there was a representative from, um, from uh, Miami University in Ohio, Miami, which was Ohio, school, yeah. by the way, you know, but, but it was just, and it was the furthest from Youngstown. I'm from Youngstown. In other words, I knew I had to go to a state school. I did know that. I found that. 
So me and my this girlfriend, she said, well, let's apply, blah, 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 because I had taken piano lessons. They made me take piano lessons, which thank God, I took theory. You see, I didn't study, I didn't practice much, but I was good at it, you know. So so this girlfriend, she said, let's, let's apply. And I made it, you know. Well, she, she finked out. I went myself. Can you imagine? I'd never been any place. But I, something was, I tell my students, I tell everybody, you know, you know this. You just, one thing leads to another. I, that's all, all I knew was I should go to college. And I always wanted to be a teacher, but, but I thought, how the heck do you teach anybody to teach? I still say that, by the way, you know. You learn to teach by teaching. You learn to sing. You know, I mean, you can and, help. And sharing love for a subject, I think. That's the biggest thing, the motivation part. You're absolutely right. But anyway, I thought, okay, so I get to this school and they ask you, what do you want to major? And I didn't even know what a major, what the heck does that mean? You know, so they put me in elementary education, which is fine, except they did it because they figured I was going to get married and not finish school anyway, you know, just, you know, just be, but, but I used to sing around the dorm, acapella. I'm telling you that I was smitten with this, you know, lover, lover, you know, funny Valentine, we'd be washing the clothes. So my roommate said, well, you should be a voice, you should be a music major. And I go, wow, great. And so it was because of her. So I did the classical. So, and I, it, I was a voice major and a piano minor because I had taking piano you know and so that's what I did in the four years I did graduate with a, a BS in music or whatever to teach but and here's where the coincidence comes in there was a trombonist on campus jazz trombonist who had been in the service his name was John Watson he ended up playing with Counsey and he was Count Basie in the end but he was from Chicago and my roommate said you know, um, you should go sing for him. He'll tell you if you can sing. He'll tell you if you can sing jazz. And so I did. And and that was it. I was in his band, 10 bucks on the weekends. And I already had a repertoire. I already had somewhat of a repertoire, you know, thank goodness. And anyway, I, that's, so that was, there you go. I'm already, now I'm in it. Now what, you know, now I'm in it. And so for a couple of years, I mean, I, I was singing. I, I was growing. I figured it out to do the tunes in my own key. See, this is all I teach now. I mean, I'm helping them and saying, you got to find your key. They would fight with me. Why don't you do the original? Well, I had the range, but it didn't sound right. You know, I'm sure. You know, and so when you go to hear Ella and them, they're not singing in the original key, you know. So that, so that was lucky. Lucky. Okay, you could say luck or you could say follow your... That's what you said. You love it and you express that, you know. So so I was there for four years and the the uh the band, the the uh, the bass player no, the piano player was a classical bass major who loved music. He I'm still in touch with him. He's out in Seattle, but he didn't do he didn't do what he could he didn't follow it like I did. He thought I was crazy when I decided to go to New York at twenty one. So what you're gonna go try to make it, you know. And the bass player was a bass player, you know, was it vibes, whatever. So that so, was the beginning. So what what made you want to go to New York and, and how did that happen for you? Because that's what, it, good question. You're like, me go to New was, I mean, it was still courageous to go to the school, you know, in, in another place. Well, in our, in our maybe on vacations in 
the thing that really pushed it over was were two two vacations. I think between between ju uh, junior and senior year, um, one of them, these guys they said let's go to New York, just for a couple of days. You know, like if you get a spring break or whatever. And I did. I don't. I don't even remember where, uh, how we did it. And Steve Lacey was playing all monk. I didn't know who he was. Remember that era? In yeah. other words, these guys knew because they, they turned me on to all this stuff. Even in college, like we would listen at night. They had records at night. They, I didn't know. I mean, I, I truthfully, I, didn't, I hadn't heard uh, many of them, you know. Uh, and then the CDs, they played Ornette, Monk. I can remember the first time they put, what is that? You know, all that stuff. So we went and there they said, let's go. There's a little club in Roswell and, and Steve Lacey and them. They were playing all monk. But they were so they were so individual. You know what I mean? I already I don't know why, but just I already react. I already knew about finding your voice, not looking for it, but having your own voice, you know. They were great. So, okay, so that was one thing. Like, wow, now in New York, we did. Oh, I know. You know what? The first time I went to New York was in my high school choir. Oh. My teacher, she, again, it wasn't about jazz, but my high school choir teacher was so cool. I, and I wish I never could see her later. We raised money and we, she got us singing the choir like in churches. We stayed in a hotel for three or four days. Mm -hmm. I didn't even get to the village, but I already... There was something about New York. You see, some people can't do it, but I got it. There was something about it. I knew I had to come back, you know. That was the first time. And then with these guys, wow. And then my, my, uh, my senior year, after we graduated, the band I was singing with got a gig in the Thousand Islands up on the Russian River. It was a steakhouse. And I waited until 10 o'clock. I waited tables, and then I sang with them. So my last table was like, oh, that's our waitress, you know, I sang, you know. So it's like, then then I had to make a decision. No, I, no, actually, that was, I don't know if that was the last year. No, maybe it was. I'm, I'm a little confused because I also did in my junior year, I went and waited tables in the Jersey Shore. Those big hotels, you know, the Monmouth and the, and the uh, Spring Lake, New Jersey. Oh, you, you were in Spring Lake in, in the 50s? Yeah, it must have been, I can't, I honestly can't remember. It might have been after I, after we did that steakhouse, the next year, the next summer. Oh, yeah, I had the waitress thing on and everything with the hat, you know, and we lived in it. But again, music was there. I made a show for them. I mean, I don't know. But anyway, I, I just remember I had to make a decision. I said, well, I knew I wasn't going to go back to Youngstown wasn't enough although although okay here's another coincidence one of my girlfriends from junior high we used to hang out a lot married a jazz bass player what are the chances of that so even before i went to college i was sitting in with him at this hotel but he was real he knew the shit you know he knew it and so i i was in it it, it, it was it i but i didn't go around saying i was going to sing jazz i just I didn't really know I was going to be a jazz singer. I was just following the music. Then I went to school and then I did get in a band, you know, with this band. But anyway, so I was either going to go to California or New York. And 
I went to the right place. I went to the right place, you know, and I didn't know anybody. So that's why I knew that they were all playing there. Miles, Monk, Mingus, Eric Dolphia. Anyway, you know, it's like one thing kept leading to the other, but the main thing was I had to be there. How could I not? You know, I knew I knew I had to follow the music. That's all I knew. I didn't know, you know. And you so, come to New York at an incredible time because everything is exploding and creativity is everywhere okay. and all the different innovations in art are happening and music. T tell me about the 60s in, in New York. Well, the thing is that uh, it was 63 was when I actually ended up moving there. And um, I, I didn't even know where I was going. I had one girlfriend from that same era of junior high. There was one friend in Ohio, Youngstown, Ohio, who was, she was very much into reading and pu uh, publishing. And she was a smart one. And her uncle lived in New York. So she did move to New York. She said, if you come, stay with me for two weeks, you know, and we look for a place. Can you imagine? I'm a little girl from Ohio. So how I had the courage to do, I never went any place myself, you know. So I did have, and then, and then there was one classical singer in, um, at college that I knew she was there because I didn't find a place in two weeks and she had found a place, the three of us stayed. So there I was, you know, I mean, I just had, and I, and I worked office temps. I didn't want to teach because it was too much responsibility. You know what I mean? So I worked office temps and I found the places. And again, at the uh, I don't know if this, if I, if I've written much about this, I got a lot of bio, you know, biography things or interviews, but when I got there, I knew where to go. You know, Monk was playing at the half uh, five spot, you know, uh, train was playing at the half note, you know, all those, they were just every week. It was so great. What but train did had, you see? Hmm? What train did you see? Which Coltrane? Yeah. Well, he was there with, um, well, the first time, let me, I'll go back a step. The first time I heard John Coltrane live, he was, he played, he was in Cincinnati. Now we were not far from Cincinnati. And uh, by that time, I knew, and everybody was saying, oh, John Coltrane's, and, and like, I lived in a dorm. In other words, it wasn't like I was, you know, Bob, let's go, you know. But I I played hooky. I, if, if they'd have had a fire drill, I'd have been in trouble, you know. And I, we found a couple of the guys, we found a place to stay, and we heard him in Dayton. We went to, since it was Dayton, Dayton, Ohio. I think, no, 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 I can't remember. It was a little club, must have been Cincinnati. And that was the favorite things group, you know, Jimmy Garrison and wow. yeah. Oh my God, no. But I, when I got to New York, then he was playing at the at the half note. I'm talking about our solos. I'm talking about our solos. People don't know what I'm talking. I'm talking about he played for a long solo, not just an hour set, you know. And so I, that's a big big influence for me. So anyway, I, I, I will talk, I have to talk fast because the 60s was very important time. Yeah. Well, the loft scene alone, I mean, I'd love to hear you talk about that. Well, this, and there should be more written about this. I had one of the first ones, but I don't get that, you know, I really did. Uh, I was doing office temps, I remember, you know, and one of my gigs was there was a woman from Holland, she was a visual artist, 
And we, you know, you talk and I was putting an account number on checks and putting in a little cubby hole or whatever, you know. And she lived in on Lisbonard Street, the low canal. You, you know what I'm talking about, yeah. right? Nothing, but that was all factory stuff. At that point, yeah. Nothing. And she said, invited me to her loft for dinner. And she was she was with another visual artist. Oh my God, they they got stuff from Chinatown. They had a hot plate. I mean, it was pretty, pretty rustic, but it was thousand square feet. And I thought, oh my God, this is, they could play at night here. You know what I mean? There was, and there were only four lofts in that building. It was right, Lisbonard, right below West Broadway, Lisbonard Canal. And, and of course, here goes another coincidence. Another month later, she called me, said, there's a, there's a, a loft available in that building, $80 a month. $80. Now, it didn't have heat. It did have a toilet. I mean, it was <laughs> $80 a month, a thousand square feet. So I took it. Mm -hmm. I don't know how I did. And I had another, uh, actually my, the, we were living, I was living on, on the Upper West Side at that time. By that time, there was, I had one roommate. It was, you know, it was uh, up on uh, 74th, around the boat basin place, you know. Yeah. And so I said, let's get this, let's go look at this loft. And we took the loft together. And um, it was, must have been spring or something, you know, it was summer or something, because then finally in the heat, I had to get a space heater and everything. But the point being, I could do music there. I started having sessions there in the loft. And nobody lived around there. I didn't know who was around there, you know. So who would some of the sessions be? So, so then, uh, um, I'm going to forget Nate. But, uh, well, Sam Rivers, Cecil McBee, Joanne Brackeen, Pete Yellen, uh, Bob Moses, Gene Lee. These are all people that ended up playing in my loft. And what ha at some point, I decided to, to present concerts in my loft. Because where was I going to work? Nobody would get me. I mean, I wasn't anybody. I was Jay Collintone. So I did. But... But that was right around the time of the free thing, you know. So so all the saxophones and stuff, Gene Lee was the other singer. You know, I met Gene Lee. I'm trying, I, there's so many stories. I can't remember if I met Gene Lee through Ran or Ran Blake through Gene Lee, but I think I met Gene Lee through Ran Blake. So he was another one, one of the first people I sang free with because she went to Europe. He went, let's just play, you know. And, the, and uh, so anyway, there was these, all of a sudden that, you know, Don Sherry and all these guys, they just, let's forget about reading music. And I had a loft so I could have the sessions. Who is the, um, the saxophone, as I'm losing his name, Young, he died in a car accident and he played with Train. Um, or he played with, um, oh God, I'll think of it in a minute. Anyway, right next door, there was, you know, was somebody they were playing. Free Life Communication was another one, uh, the Dave's Liebman and then Bob Moses. That was another whole thing. We would go there and, and do sessions there. Right, and, so Liebman had his loft over there as well. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of chronologically what came first, the chicken or the... Because uh, some of the early people I played with was uh, Mark Whitecage and Perry Robinson, you know, that whole thing. And um, the, again, it would be in someone's you know, someplace where you could play. I haven't got it. 
straight about the decades, like what happened in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And I'm trying to archive a little, and then I give up. Every few years, I give up. I, you know. Well, one name I saw, I saw that you had worked with, which really fascinated me, was the tenor saxophonist, the saxophonist John Gilmore. John Gilmore. Yeah. I, well, he's the one that played with Sun Ra, right? Yes. Yeah. I didn't play with him that much, but he might have, he might have played in my loft, you know. I actually made flyers and everything, you know. I mean, we just did the whole thing. And, and you know, there was that whole loft thing. Um, well, there was Studio Rivby, there was uh, Ornette's loft on Rivington. Right. And, but the thing is that, and I saw that some, they did some kind of article. I don't know why it wasn't mentioned so much, because I'm going to be honest with you. Sam Rivers played in my loft. So he, he's, his was later, you know, Sam. Then there was Enron. I used to produce concerts at Enron also. I don't know if you know, it was a huge loft. And the, 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 it's interesting because the Brubeck brother, uh, the sons of Day, they had a, a loft behind the performance space and they actually, ha I really should get in touch with them and thank them. They really helped support, pay the rent for that. Isn't that interesting though? I mean, that music, if, you know, I don't remember them playing free or so much or anything, but they were so supportive. Uh, I think they were, they were pretty open. Um, another loft that was big for me, which is later though, in the 70s into the early 80s was uh, Soundscape, Verna Gillis. Right, right. But did she actually have a space? Mm -hmm. Yeah. She produced outside of the space, but she had a space on 52nd Street called Soundscape. Yeah, I just, rem I just remember that as her company, but I didn't know, yeah. And we would walk up, the, I think it was the fifth floor, and we'd walk up the stairs and we could see Sun Ra there. We'd, I remember seeing Donald Eiler there. Uh, we'd, we could see Andrew Cyril and his projects, Ronald Shannon Jackson. Oh, God. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, so many great projects there. And then, of course, she was doing stuff at public theater and other places. Right. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, there, the other thing that was significant for me was, and that talk about sitting in, I had so much nerve. I tell my students, now, now we have open mics, I give, I present them in, con I mean, it's a little easier now. I'm talking about, I would have to ask big name, you know, can I sit in? The reason I did it wasn't, so much to be famous, right? I didn't think they were going to hire me. It was to find out how I was doing. How was I? Do Could I actually get there and do my thing without Could you? Could you hang? You know, it's scary. So there was a play, maybe you know about the uh, um, electric company, the, um, oh God, across the street from the, the, the five spot was a little club where um, the soprano saxophonist, tall saxophonist, who, Tony, 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 um, Tony, uh, oh, Jesus, it's just my memory. Tony. He's tall. He ended up moving to Rome. He played, uh, played uh, soprano sax. I'll think of it in a minute. And he had a session there, never real late, you know. And I remembered when when Jack D. Jeanette, Jack D. Jeanette, he might be even a couple of years younger than me, you know, but they he came to town around the same time. And I and I would sit there till two in the morning. Oh, Tony, oh God, I it just went right from my mind. It'll come up. You'll you'll know who I'm talking about. Who else did he work with? Jackie Byard was on the piano. 
you know, and, and I think George Moraz was around that time. I mean, it was great. And, but he would, I asked to sit in, but of course he would hit on me first. Mm. Then, then that, that was the hard part, you know, being a young in, in, in that time, but I don't care. I waited till two and I went and sang. And, uh, and for me, it was significant. You know, I, I, I did sing. I, and, and if they asked me to do another tune, I knew it was cool. And they did. And, and, and they did. So, I mean, I was serious, you know what I mean? I mean, I, I, I found every possible place to sit in, even if it wasn't jazz, you know, they had cabaret places or piano bar, you know, anything to just do my, my thing, you know. But I mean, I just thought of that because it was so, uh, it was such a great thing, you know, down, around there, you know. How, how important was Steve Lacey for you? Well, he was. In other words, he he didn't. He wasn't in the. Uh, uh, my story is that I had the nerve to call him up on the phone. Now I I'm telling you, I only saw them that one time before I graduated, at that place. But there was something because the reason I called him was I didn't know who I wanted to find the local places. In other words, I knew I could go hear Monk in them, but I knew there had to be places where I could meet other musicians that were my my closer to me. And so, and uh, did you meet Steve? Do you know Steve? Did you know him? I did meet him while he was in New York, but uh, didn't know him, no. Yeah, he, he, in other words, it's not like he's Mr. Outgoing. He wasn't right. that approachable, you know what I mean? Not mean or anything, but Steve was serious, you know. But I picked up the, I looked up in the phone book. I can't believe I did this because I wanted to know if he could tell me where I could meet Go. Where was the hangs, not right. the big clubs. And he gave me the time of day. I said, I'm green. I'm, you know, I'm just starting singing, blah, 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 blah. I, and so um, he, how did this happen? Oh, yeah. His bass player, Louis Worrell. Do you know that name? Hardly any He disappeared, you know. Oh, he did. Louis had a crush on me, I know, but whatever. <laughs> I did. You know, there's, but that they, uh, Louis Worrell played with Mark Levin, who was a, and I don't know if you know that name. He he worked with he he studied with Bill Bill Dixon. He was one of those free players. Yeah, and Mark Levin had a band, a big, a, and Lewis was in that band. And uh, Carlos Scott, who played the cello, hanging around his neck, and so Mark said they had a, a gig uh, because it was around the war in Vietnam. And they had some kind of benefit concert. And Mark was had his band. They were playing a lot of free jazz, but there was a trio next. And so Lewis said, and they were looking for a singer to play with, sing with the trio. And Lewis recommended me. So one thing leads to another, you know, because he knew. So I, and that trio was my age. They were like, they were cool. They lived on the Lower East Side. I used to go jam with them, you know. That. So, so one thing led to the other. And Steve, I would go here, Steve. I never really, really played with Steve, because um, he, it, he, but he's the one like I would hang out with them to go to the five spot. He showed me where the musician, the instrumentalists would stand, be there. They didn't have to pay the cover. Right. You know, it was hard, and I wouldn't get hit. On. But then he moved to Paris. You see, it was very short lived, but it was just enough that I hooked up on the scene, you know, and he is a mentor to me because. 
I later produced that. He did a solo seat record years later at Enron. I produced that. He couldn't get the time of day. He was living in Paris. He couldn't work in New York. It was very hard for Steve. You really? remember that? Yeah, he, they went to Europe because he couldn't get a gig, you know, with that original music that he had. So one time he came to New York and I, I honestly, I did the flyers, I did everything. He did a solo concert at Enbrun, it's beautiful. So he, so musically, he was, he's a mentor to me. I, I consider him a mentor. It was like, I don't know, uh, but then he, I, I saw he and his wife uh, in, in Paris years later, but uh, yeah, he was, that was a major thing for me, you know. And then one thing led to another. The other story is my Pookie Pub story. I don't know if you... Okay. And again, the half note, I, I decided at some point, I had my loft and I did those sessions, everything, blah, blah, blah. And I would do the concerts. Sometimes it was all standard. Sometimes it was free, totally free. I mean, Lieb will tell you that. In other words, now I have found structures and you know from my music, in other words, I'm into both, that's it. And I, and, and it, my, this last thing that I sent you, the three for the road, Ed Neumeister, we're on the same page, I'm telling you. I, I, I loved it, it's a great trio. Did I send you the, the concert, the actual concert, the link? I might yes, have. Yes, and, and, the, and the trio with... Um, Versace, Versace. Versace, yeah. yeah. He's great, great. So we just start. But I'm saying it could go in either way, you know, standards and not. You seem to work really beautifully with trombonists. Why is that? How, I don't know. I, <laughs> I worked, you name him. I work with Julian Priester. Have you got that? My, my yeah, secret. yeah, Julian Priester, Versace, yeah. I worked with so many, you name him. Roswell, I had a couple gigs with Roswell. Even I can even, and I forgot his name. There was another one in New York. I don't know. <laughs> I do, I do work well with them, but why did they come into my life? You know, why, why was it trombone? I don't know. It's, it's a very vocal instrument, I think. How about Marty Cook? Marty Cook, Marty? yeah. He, he, I was in his band, the New York Jazz Explosion or something. Mm -hmm. We used to play at Jolie Wilson's The Ladies' Fort. And we probably did Rivby. Um, yeah, I don't know. Jay, you, you strike me as having this quality that I see in so many of the elder states folk that I, I get to chat with. You're not conservative about genre or approach. You're not snobby. Free is as good as standards. Standards are as good as classical and everything is sort of of a piece. Is that part of your upbringing? Is that just something, I mean, obviously you, you bolted out of Ohio to come to New York. Is that just your, your, your frame of mind is that everything is musical? What is it? No, I, I think it's, well, it's a couple of things. Uh, one of the key things is the improvisational aspect of everything, you know, because to me, and even singing free, it, when you're improvising, whether it's over or changes or if it's free, you are influenced by what you heard in your whole life, everything. I think what drove me was I was so curious about what the voice could do. 
besides the function of singing a song, which I still love. I'm a, I'm going to, somebody asked me to do a, a whole workshop, Nick, this on Friday. She's in bon Montreal. They're doing it, you know, on text and the words and the meaning. And because I'm so into that, whether you're singing free or not, uh, form follows function, message is everything to me, you know, whether you're singing with words or without words, you know, feeling. And so I guess I was, that's why, you know, I, I have early John Cage recordings. I did early John Cage. Why did I sing with Steve Reich? You know, and there was no improv. I mean, I couldn't just do that because, well, yeah. You're jumping ahead there, but I did want to talk about that. Uh, how did you fall in with Steve Reich? Well, because Joan LaBarbera, you know who? I know her well, yes. She studied jazz with me. Ah. La Barbara was from Peter La Barbara. She was married to Peter La Barbara, and I knew him, you know, with that, I play with him. She actually studied the standards with me. It was short-lived because that's not where she lives. She's, she's into that extended technique and everything. So she knew, I don't, I don't, I have to ask her, I don't know how she met Steve. But she told me one day, Steve Reich is looking for a jazz singer who could read. In other words, he didn't want a classical sounding voice. So that makes sense when you know his music. Yes. Well, guess what? He lived a block away from me. Who would have known? He had a, he was on Broadway. I was a Lisp Bernard, was that short, you know, thing. Mm -hmm. And she invited me. She, he was writing drumming. Right. It was in the middle. It was, she had just the first whole section, you know, which that was the sec, I forget, but the, there's that one section where the, where we singers sing the resultant patterns, mm -hmm. you know, and so we chose them together. So it was Joan and um, again, I see her face and there's the other singer that was in the original one. You have to look it up. And that's uh, how it happened. You know, uh, 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 there were three of us and he would play it and then we'd hear that melody. And then we, he helped, we decided on the, the melodies that we would sing. But once again, I was singing clarinet parts, you know, percussive kind of things, everything written, no improv. But... I'm wondering about tone, because when I listen to those recordings, and I listened to them early, I, I was at 18 Musicians at the premiere as a high school student. Oh, wow. Was so it that, that's how far back I go. With, with Steve Reich and Musicians performing premieres in New York, I was at the premiere of Tehalim. So, you know, put that all out on the table. But I'm concerned about, interested in, the sounds and the shapes of the sounds that the vocalists are making in pieces like Mallet Instruments, Voices and Organ, and 18 Musicians. What is Steve saying to you? What are you doing with the notes? I know it's all written out, but how are you approaching it as a vocal artist? Well, see, that's interesting. For me, I, in retrospect, and I hadn't thought about it until you asked, one of the things that I through jazz was I worked at trombone and I always worked with instrumental horn players and I would double lines with them. And I, I, I teach this too, because my students are always like, well, what syllables? Well, I didn't decide any of that. I blended with them. So in other words, I don't know, do, 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 do. you know, I can go do, 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 do. These are like, if you, if you isolate my part of Steve Reich, it's, you got nothing, you know, you got do, 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 you know. <laughs> but so I, 
that was one of my strengths that he nobody would know. But I mean that that he didn't. Yeah, we didn't decide. We we it was through the process because he was actually still writing the piece. Yeah, and, and like on, yeah. on music for mallet instruments, voices, and organ, it almost sounds like you guys are like water harps or water. There's some sort of water sound going on in there. The vocals, that was, thing? yeah, yeah, the vocals. And I'll tell you, I I. That was the only piece that if there was, there was, see, it's, a, it's, it's gamelan music on Western, yeah. In other words, it's not about soloists and all this. Right. I had a hard time at first because those, uh, in, in uh, any of them, those are great vamps to solo over. <laughs> you know, I mean, it wasn't appropriate. It took me a minute to understand the... Uh -huh. Yeah. The thing, but at first, like, oh man, I, I could, oh, I could just really play on those. But the, I, I got it. I was. Were they tough stamina wise? Did what? That was the repetition tough stamina wise. See, I don't think there aren't that many singers. You can't just get a sub for that stuff. Right. It was, and then especially, um, was it eighteen? Yeah. Woo. Uh, then it, it, it was high too and over and over so we had to figure that out you know and we did but so was, you figured it out in terms of breath as far as how how many times things could be repeated or what was breathing like in that situation well it's just short everything do, 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 do. there wasn't there were never really long phrases but but the repeat the how to repeat it we just did it by you know and you're right i don't think any singer could just do that it's like you 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 learn how to make it easy because you're not doesn't require that much breath really except for those very high ones. And, you, and you're amplified. And we were amplified, so we just touch it. Yeah, absolutely. It had, that was a very important part of it. Then that's what I mean. It wasn't classical production. That's not what he, that conceptually that wouldn't have worked. He's right, you know. And the interesting thing about the, the, the one freedom I had in that voices, organ, mallet instruments or whatever, was that I determined when it was enough. I, in other words, I actually had a little, you know, I would do it if, you know, do this. It's like open repeat. And then I look over to Jim Price, who was, he had the, he had the, the cue. He played the cue to move on to the next section, but he was looking at me, you know, and then I would back off and that was fun. And I, I did, I, that was, that piece was fun for me because do you, some of the patterns I had, I found this stuff. I didn't want to stick out, but it also had a pres, it had a little presence, you know. So I do remember that one. Yeah, that was cool. The blending of the instruments and the voices in that is really spectacular. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I truthfully have not listened to that music much. I only listen from the inside, you know. And a couple of times that I listened. It's completely different. Talk about music for 18 musicians. You have no, I mean, listening as you're doing it and listening like this, the result is two different things. Well, you, you listen like it's Yeah, you see what I'm saying. Yeah. I heard things I could never hear while I was doing it, actually. That's fascinating. Also fascinating to me is the beginning of that music. The, you know, you, Philip Glass is doing his thing in, involving a kind of, repetitive and, and minimal amounts of material. Steve is more interested in the Eastern and, and the African influence on what he can do. Lamont Young obviously is, is important in all of that. 
but what is the uh, reception to that music? Can you take us to, to that time period where people are starting to hear Steve Reich and minimalism for the first time in that scene? I'm going to tell you straight out, on or off the books, I never could understand. And there, you know, I, because I was, I never was on the outside, just what we're talking about. I thought, oh my God, who's going to listen? You know, how could you listen to some of it? It was hard to listen to, you know, but there's an audience. And Steve Reich, he figured it out. And it's not, it's, he figured it out. I, 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 he, he got sponsors from the get-go. People who would put money into me so we could even rehearse. And then he went to museum, you know, we did galleries, museums, not any, you know, it's it, so... I'm still, I mean, I, I have a lot of respect for him. I think it's beautiful music. It's, it's a, for minimal music, you know, but how he did it, I, I, I you got to, you tell me who were those people that, that really dig it? Who are they now? They do. And I never, especially, we were and musicians. We're the and musicians, right? right. Nobody played it. And now, now people are playing. And it's colleges. You see, I thought, who is going to... It was the music that only the composer does, you know. But I no. remember, actually, when it was frowned upon in academia. It had to be. It was like, what is this? Yeah. 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 And now, yeah. as you say, it's performed by students around the world. Uh, you know, but that was also true of Morton Feldman's music. Yeah. Yeah. People because, heard it and they thought, you know, what is this? It's so repetitive. What's the point? And now people view it as, as beautiful art. Yeah, but that's true for any new thing. And even, even the free music. I mean, getting back to the jazz stuff, it's like we played for very small audiences. Yeah, Liebman told me that people, as much as we revere the free period now and we have so much more perspective on it, at the time it was tough for the, on the audience. Yeah, the, the diehards were there. And I, I was just telling some of my, because I, you know, in my teaching, I, I teach so-called free music. In other words, you don't find it in the colleges. When I was at Cornish College for 20 years, you know, talk about, you know, Stellar, Jerry Grinelli, Gary Peacock, Julian Priester, you know, I had an ensemble, a free ensemble. And I feel that it is, it should be more in the jazz history because where do we, and same with Dave, doesn't mean that, we, that everything we, is free, but I stuck with it. I still have my, you saw, a lot of that is free. My, my, the duo thing with Grinelli. So great. We, didn't, we just went in and did it. But that's because we continue to do it, you know. But I think it's very important because that's where you find stuff. Well, isn't there... You compose, you're a composer. Yes. Yeah. And an improviser. And, and so I would say this, when I heard your, your, your Grinelli project, your duo with Jerry Grinelli, and he's always been one of my favorite percussionists. I, I, you know, as a percussionist, we all admire him, his in ingenuity, his groove, all of these things that, that are in that one player, you know, sort of similar in a way to Jack DeJeanette, where, you know, you're going to get everything that you need, whether it's free or whether it's a ballad or whatever it is. So this thing with you and Jerry is a thing that I've tried to, to always do in my duets with Derek Bailey or with Paul Smoker, is that you, you limit what you do so that you almost are kind of like creating a thematic space, but you can still be free within that. 
And so each of those pieces with you and Jerry were kind of like a different room or a different universe. And that to me is, is the, the most creative and type. It, it, in an improv in, in general, it, it happens even in soloing. But the point is with Grinelli and I, um, we met at Naropa Institute because, you know, uh, Oregon, the whole group Oregon was teaching there. And, and finally I got in, I just got invited there. And the first con, Grinelli had heard me. I had not actually heard him, you know, but he, he knew, he, he must've known who I so-called was, you know, and I wasn't there three days. And he, he said, do you want to do a concert with me and Colin Walcott? Period. Two percussionists and me in a sanitarium. That planetarium. I, oh, that was a, the, that was a little slip. <laughs> you have to be crazy. It know? would have worked either way. It, you, you know what I meant. It was that crazy. But, but my point is that because we, we are like-minded, we, we were totally into that. He trusted me. He completely trusted me. And, the, and, and even, even, do you have the first, the first duo thing is called Sound Songs. I don't know if you have that. Maybe you I do. I don't know that one, no. That was 20, 30 years ago. And it was one of the early digital recordings. It was, you know, on a, on a video thing. And it was in a place where they do video, you know. And when you hear that, and you must hear that, I have to somehow, I don't have a link, but I don't know how to do that. But you must hear the original one, too. It sounds like a bunch of pieces. They're not, except right. for except for Goodbye Pork Pie Hat. I did that one on the first one, and I did uh, a poem, I think, Emily Dickinson, which wasn't written. I mean, it wasn't anything. But my point is that just what you described, well, you're a musician. And this is true now when I, because I have, voc you know, Vocal Summit, you know, voc vo vocal free pieces. I kept writing them in workshops. In the, but the, what you said is exactly what's happening. And it's the same with soloing. They all have a different character. They're all different points of departure. So it's not like a rule. You can't improvise this way on this, but you do. The, whatever is written evokes a certain kind of improv. And I, I'm so into that. I, I love that. Or not. And some people sing or play free, no matter what the tune is, but it's not. It evokes a certain space kind of thing. It could be, you know, angular. It could be even harmonic is the hardest one, of course. You but know. how about lyrically free? How, how does that work for you? You mean words, text. Words, words, word choice in free settings. Well, that's an interesting thing, too, because I, um, for a long time, I didn't. Jean Lee was Jean Lee was the you know she wrote poetry and she did it a whole different thing than me. But tell me about Jean Lee. She's she's such a great. Uh, she's a, such a, I, I still dedicate. Do you have my solo CD? If you don't, I I'm gonna say I, I don't, but I know it. Yeah. You know about the piece yeah. of wild things, but I actually do one of her things on there, and I dedicate that to her because she was such a free spirit. I mean, her last child was because I had a bit, uh, my, my, my son is now, you know, going to be 50 and, and, uh, and she, I had him and then she got eyes to get to be pregnant. That's how close we were, you know, oh. but Jean was even more spacey than me, but the, but the operative thing was Jean Lee was Jean Lee. She had her rhythmic thing and she was into movement too. And one of the very first 
because people would ask me to teach and I'm like, you know, you can't teach this. You just got to go, you know, I didn't have a teacher, you know, just listen to the music. But then I kept their names in the first, actually one of the early ones she and I did together, a workshop. And it was free. I don't remember what we did, but we had a lot. I, so I would started making up these points of departure. In other words, you can just say, and I still do that. I'll just say, sing free now, just for one minute. I think everybody should start all of their instrumentals, all their practice period, just sing free for two minutes, play free, don't even think. And that's what I think is, can be missing because we got to do that because that's what we were doing. But in schools, you don't. So I, I, I actually had a, a free ensemble and we would have times when we were just like we were in the lofts. And, and he's rightly, it's like, but guess what? The diehard, the audience that came, they knew that at any moment, something fantastic could happen. Out of uh, something you couldn't, you couldn't compose. And that's why I feel, I feel very sad in a way that, there, that we don't have recordings of a lot of that stuff, but that's what's after. And the more you do it, the more of a composer you become. So, and together, you may, you know when it's long, something went on long enough. You well, know when you need space. It's collaborative composition, isn't it? It's spontaneous It's collective composition. composition, we call it collective composition. That's a new, th yeah, you're making a piece together, you know, and, and you can't describe it. So I throw them in, just sing. And it's amazing. And at first they may be conscientious. I also do a thing. Uh, I don't know if you have my book. I wrote a book called Sing Your Story. I don't have any here. I'd send it to you. Uh, it's, a, it's for teaching and learning the art of jazz singing, but there's a little free section in it, you know, because I started to write structures, points of departure, you yeah. know, my most what famous. What would those be, Jay? Hmm? What would those be? Like four ten two is 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 the one I was thinking of it. I, it's a piece called four and fortune cookie. Do you know about fortune cookies? On so I've recorded that. Do you know about quartet? When Peacock and Priester and Grinelli and I we did. It's called No Secrets. Yes. Fortune. I wrote fortune. It's in my book. It's 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 a notated, uh, rhythmically notated. Look, you know, but but there's no pitches. There's little X's for the notes. You know which I like that. In other words, I don't want to do a lot of reading, but I do want structure, you know. So I wrote that for quartet. I actually got a grant, you know, get a, you know, get me a grant while you're up. I actually did get it before any, now they don't do it, it was a performance, NEA. And, uh, and so um, that, uh, that's what I mean, that structure. So that's, and you know why I wrote that? So I could, because I wanted to uh, solo better on a fast walking bass, like Charlie Hayden, Dave Vaughn, you know, free bop. It's free bop, it's wings. And so for me, the, the ingredients that I do require for myself, that if a like-minded person is swinging, I don't care if it's free or not, you know, free does not mean crazy. Right, and that's, that's super important. On this spot. Sorry, say one more time. It doesn't mean weird. It doesn't have to be so out. And people who don't play free much, they love doing it with me. But that's the first thing they're going to do is, a, you know, right. I, oh, don't get me wrong. I do that if it's evoked, you know. And there's a thing on quartet 
the, the No Secret CD that it's Peacock and Priester, it sounds like a ballad, it's totally free. They just, they were able to do that harmonic thing together. Was so, that's hard, you know, the harmony. But I had anyway. that experience with uh, George Garzon and John Lockwood. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's totally free, but it's a tune. Because you're listening, you really, yeah. you have everything and you've heard a lot of stuff. Yeah, that's the hardest one, but I'm fascinated by it. And, and we recently lost Gary Peacock. Can you tell, tell us a few things about Gary? Well, um, I was scared to death of Gary Peacock. I, I heard Gary Peacock with Miles at the Vanguard. So I knew, and then I come go out to, then I go out to uh, Cornish. They invited me to teach at Cornish College, you know, and like, ugh. So fortunately, because, you know, we all have people who kind of, oh my God, you know. Um, and he was he was known for that though. I don't know. Did you know Gary? I did. I he's a sweetheart, but he was a toughie. That was you know. I, I had a good experience. I did his oral history for Yale oral history of American music, and he gave me a lot of time, and it was great. Yeah. No, he is, but he did have a reputation of being kind of tough. You know. I mean, so fortunately, uh, before I went to teach at Cornish. Um, I turned it down at first. I went, what do you mean, leave New York City? Are you? I'd never even been in Seattle. So I said, I said, well, just um, why don't you make a little 10 day tour or something and I'll teach out there, maybe make some gigs and then I'll see, you know. Anyway, they did and Art Landy was there too. Art, he and I like, we can do a concert tomorrow. Boom, just do it, you know. And he was out there. So there's my band, you know, Gary Peacock, Julian Priester, Art Landy, Jerry Grinelli, I mean, come on, what better band? They made three or four concerts. And so, but before our concerts, uh, Peacock was at Jazz Alley with somebody. It might've been Stanley Cow. I don't know. He's another one. Oh, I love Stanley. Work with him. Um, they asked me to sit in. Ah, this is before our gigs, thank God. And I did, I think I did, you don't know what love is. And I got a little, huh, out of Peacock. You know how if you some you know there's a little jazz sound if you, you like something you go huh whatever it was and that was it I'm just telling you personally that was like okay I think I can work with them now I think he hears me you know so we did I mean I you know we we played together in quartet you know that's I did you know we didn't and uh, I wasn't a he's he he died not so far from here you know he's he's up in the Hudson or whatever upstate. Uh, the person that was more close to him was Peggy Stern, the piano player, you know. So so a lot of times in the last few years, I would see him because he would go to her house, we'd have a little get together. But I really wasn't there when he died. But I, I know he was sick. You know, he, was sick. he was sick. I, I have great memory of seeing him in a trio with Jerry Grinelli and Ralph Towner. Right. And it was at Fat Tuesdays. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> it was probably 1980. And I remember seeing Jerry playing with uh, chopsticks. And as a, a teenage percussionist, I thought that was very groovy. Oh, yeah. We we just have this thing. It, it, it's like for years. That that was it. We can. And so we, what happened was, and I tell my people, like, they want to sing free. Well, you got to do it. So I do it. I do it in my even on Zoom, there's not much you can do, but it's like I have this 4102, by the way, is uh, it's just four long tones, 10 short tones, two long tones. 
and I say medium loud, at the, not longest, but, you know, any pitch you want. And what happens is if you hear three people or three anythings doing it, it's this random stuff that happens. And, and then, you, you stick with your pitch? So you're holding you against? No, you don't think, just do it independently. You, you're picking, you're choosing any pitch you want, you know, and, and the reason, and I, and I don't remember when I invented this, it was years ago, it's like, why 4102? How come 511, whatever, it doesn't matter. And why I could say long tones and short tones. No, 4102, it determines the length of the piece. But it could be forever. I could do 4102 till I die. I just leave big spaces, but it doesn't. It kind of determines the length of the piece. And I can, that's something that I do now what I do, I discovered this stuff on, you know, teaching on Zoom. Theoretically, we, like three or four of us do it and somebody's free over it. That's the whole idea. Or, or they do text. They can use text. You, you originally asked me about text. Um, in the beginning um, I just, uh, 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 of this free stuff, I can remember in quartet was the one, there was a place in Seattle that we had a gig. It's, it's probably the only time, once in a while I invent, I, I, I make up text. Now I'm using a lot of E.E. E. Cummings and Emily Dickinson and all that. I memorize them. I don't know when they're gonna come out, you know. But at that time I wrote, and this is a piece that's on um, circle dancing. I don't know if you have circle dancing. It's a CD with, this, with uh, Jim Knapp and Brigham Krause and Grinelli and I don't even think, no, it isn't even Grinelli. Anyway, you should have this because it's really got a lot of original stuff. But anyway, I was doing, I was uh, singing with Quartet Free and out came sometimes, sometimes I wonder. I, it was the whole thing and I made a solo piece out of it, which I'll send you sometime. You'll be so sick of me. You're going to be so sick of me. Well, no, I, I'm, I'm not sick of you. I'm loving hearing these stories. And uh, Jay, I'm so curious about your, your contact with John Cage and, and his music, because I know that there wasn't a lot of uh, uh, performance of his vocal music and you're one of the first people, right? Yeah, I'm gonna tell you something. It was my first album, All Out. It's called Jay Clayton, All Out. The, uh, Heiner Stadler was a, a composer uh, and, and he loved, uh, well, I mean, we don't say third stream, but ish, third stream stuff, you know, like, a classical thing and jazz thing. Anyway, Heiner Stadler wrote all out. It's a free piece. It has some written Jane and I will double this written stuff and then it's totally little free sections. Anyway, that's, but he, he's the one, he said, he, he thought that Cage was not interested in recording it in those early years. He didn't care about recording. Oh, wow. So he wasn't a part of that project, but Heiner found his earlier pieces, which were tonally simple, but God, five, four, seven, you know, yeah. And again, no improv, you know. Right. So he wanted me to record. He actually, I think, you know, you remember Lambert Hendricks and Ross, and then for, uh, when, uh, for a while was Lambert Hendricks and Bavon, what's her name? He had asked her originally, I think, and she oh, it wow. wasn't, it wasn't uh, I don't think she, it it's real conceptual, that stuff, that early stuff. It was called the She's Asleep. Um, and it had no words and it was everything notated. Anyway, my point is we, we weren't in touch with Cage. We just did it and, and it was released. Now you fast forward. 
I'm teaching at Cornish, and of course there's a percussion group there, and all those wonderful things. They, they would present concerts, and so in, I think it was his 70th birthday or something, <laughs> he, he came out to Cornish, and this percussion ensemble said, Jay, why don't you do, she says, well, guess what? I never performed any of his music. I only recorded it. So, the, so I did it. And the only time I ever since performed it, he was in the audience. <laughs> and he was cool. He liked it. I mean, can you, the gall, oh my God, I was so nervous. You know, it was it. You know, all this, oh my God, I can't believe I did it. But he was around, you know, and, and it's, I tell my students, I, he came to, when we did a, a festival of his music at Rutgers when I was a student in 82, he would be in the audience at Experimental Intermedia or at the, the uh, you know, Alice Tully Hall, you would see Mr. Cage there. Did, did you ever see him at other concerts? I think I saw one where he, more in that chance thing with the shells and everything. Yeah. Yeah. But I, here's what I think, the mystique of Cage, until he started to record. But even then, I know that more people knew who he was than ever heard his music. And I, in my career, I'm a little like that. I'll be honest with you. I got a reputation, and I, but I, you know, who buys my... Now, now I think maybe now, who knows, maybe when I'm 90. But the point is they, even instrumental... I know a lot of instrumentalists and they, they want to play with me now. It's so great. I'm just telling you, I'm being honest with you. That's, the, that's what carries me through. These guys really do, you know, because we're on the same page, you know. But say, like, oh, Jay Clayton, who's he? You know, they'd heard my name. And Cage was like, I, I heard that name for years, but I never heard his music because it wasn't recorded, you see. So then Joan later, when Joan, by the time Joan LaBarber did his thing, he, he was into it by then, I think. You know, what, a, what a mistake. What an interesting, well, you probably saw him more than me. I, I may have, but I do, I do know the mystique that you're referring to and also saw it kind of uh, a little broken down in, in terms of, he did have a lot more interest in the performance outcome than he might have let on with you know chance operations and the I Ching and all these things and then trying to remove personality or choice but then you're left with non-choice which is still a choice and then i guess you know it, it becomes difficult to to weed through that for me so I'm a big fan of his notated music, but I found the verbal instruction pieces and the, the I think operation. I did one of them where you, you each got a card or something, and then mm -hmm. it was events, a bunch of events. Events, know? yeah. But his early stuff, and uh, again, I, I, I recorded it, I want to say Virgo. I can't remember who put it out. Um, it was, yeah, very tonal. And, and even though I... Uh, it was it was no words. I just remember that all notated, but there was a certain you could be in that. In other words, it was definitely me. I wouldn't stick out, but but uh, yeah, I don't know. But it was for me. It was like how many people knew his name but never heard him until later yeah. on. Now he's recorded more. You know. And it's always it's interesting to me because you know there's all these different ways of people that were subverting outcomes of music, like free playing is not going to necessarily be harmonic. And uh, instruction, verbal instruction process pieces aren't gonna necessarily be rhythmic. 
So it's like you're, all these things that are sort of being what you throw out, what you keep, and what it is that's structuring this activity. Oh, it's, uh, it is fascinating. But this thing, this fortune cookie goes a long way. I'm going to send, well, <clears throat> I wish I had my book, but I'll, I might send you the, the score, you know. It, it, and it's like, I, I once did a little, uh, just what you're talking about, they asked me out in Seattle to do this little lecture thing about free music. And I would show them what was written and then I'd play. And it was like, my God, it was like 10 minutes of music, but this one little nut, nothing on there, you know. So only improvisers could really do it. People who had composing skills, but could do it right on the spot. To make it interesting, I think, or musical, you need musical people to insert themselves into these situations. Yeah, they're not just interpreting notes. They are... Right. They're part of the music. I, if you can't solo on a free ball, because that was, you know, oh, you know what reminded me of it? There's no pitches, but if you get three people singing this, what I wrote rhythmically, random chords, they're beautiful chords. Yeah. Can, you know, so you'll see it. You'll see it. And it's, um, it's on, it's on, of course, it's on No Secrets. Uh, I recorded a couple of times, but the most, I did it with, uh, with singers, I do it. And it's a great thing to work on. In other words, to and, and they have to go. Keep it in time, you know. I figure. I just, in retrospect, I take a lot of this free stuff into workshops, and I go, "What am I? They're going to make any money doing this? I mean, who's going to, you know?" There's a lot of basics you get from it. Is your time okay? Can you trade force? You know, where's the pulse? You know, did you hear that? And they jump in and do it. But you can only do, as far as soloing, if you haven't heard much jazz, it's going to be different, you know. Uh, I just think listening is a huge, and you, you agree, I mean, because we both listen a lot. It's, it's not, you know Todd Kuhlman, the bass player? Yeah. Well, you know who he is. But I mean, I, a lot of times I get little verbiage when I co-teach with people. I love the way, and he said, uh, I use this all the time, I go, I'm not, this is not a suggestion, you know, listening is not optional. That's so how, I say, it's an oral music. You can, if you didn't hear swing, you're not going to swing, okay? And yeah. also I say to students, I'm glad you have, you know, you're practicing your, you know, your technique, how you're listening chops. Hello, say it again, yeah. And in my book, I have a whole page that says, listen, listen, you know what I mean? I, I'm absolutely, you know, it's like, and... When, in, when I was at Cornish, it was 82 to 2002. So it must have been in the 80s. I don't remember when the internet, you know, whatever. It was around that time. I was in Seattle. And I would have these classes. The kids, the singers would sing individually with the rhythm section. And they may say it would be something like all of you. All of you. And I go, I tell singers to listen to horn players. I tell horn players to listen to singers. But he, I said, well, have you heard Miles' version? And they go, no, you know, the singer. And I go, well, guess what? In my, in my school on Mars, if you tell me that, here's what I'll do. And I would go like this on the wall. And I said, it'll come out the speakers. I was serious. I was dead serious. And a few years later, I could have done that with my computer. You ever hear all, oh, YouTube. Isn't that, I mean, for all whatever with the rights and getting paid or whatever, YouTube is... I go to YouTube a lot. I know. <laughs> I, 
I'm telling you, because they were like, oh, I can't afford to buy this and I can't get the records and I can't afford. Oh, no, 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 no. It's everything. Well, I'm people don't know what to listen to. They don't know what not to listen to. They have so many options now. Yeah. Jay, I wanted to ask you about something that I think I think you were an innovator in and um, something that I know that you've you've been very involved in is vocal processing, both live and in, in recordings. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that because I know not many singers cotton to that. Well, there are no, the, the thing is, it's not uh, processing. For me, it's uh, because that I, it's, it's looping. It's more looping for me. Okay. So here's how it started. And this is- to do pitch things also, no? Nope, nope. Um, as a, but I do it live. I have some things that I save, like I have a whole piece, and this is interesting. This is the, uh, I have a piece called Seven Eight Thing that I, I it, you know what, if you YouTube me, uh, I think somebody put that on there. And I think it was influenced from Reich. Okay, I wrote it around the time I was with Steve Reich. Mm -hmm. In the second place, a lot of times I write things just like uh, when I wrote Fortune Cookie, I write things for, uh, with things I want to work on. So, you know, his is all odd meter, you know, threes and twos, and there's no real bars and everything. So I wrote a piece in 7-8. It has an ostinato, an ostinato, and I wrote melodies over it except mine has always has improv sections, the things to improvise over, you know. So, okay, I can't remember where I was going with this. Um, well, oh, I'm, electronics. Yeah, so, so, and it's not, it's not electronics, but I, that little ostinato, I got somebody to make, uh, 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 it's, it's either they did it uh, electronic or whatever, it's this wonderful ostinato that I put it in my loop station. So why do I do a loop station? Grinelli was, Grinelli had, look, did you know, he used it with his drums. He doesn't do much anymore. He was one of the early ones. And he kept saying, I had this little keyboard and I said, I don't want this. I, I thought I would use this. I'm going to go to the music store. He said, why don't you get something? Electronic? You know, so what you're saying, processing, my first thing was a chorus pedal. Right. Blue pedal. So that is, it does do something with your voice. Well, you have like parallel, parallel lines that go with it, right? Well, it just changes. The way I used it was, I didn't care about the, I also ended up with the harmonizer, which would, you that's would. What I, well, I guess that's what I mean, yeah. But the, but the, um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the first one I got just kind of put a little edge on your voice, a chorus. So it did, it was a chorus. I mean, there were other sounds, but it didn't necessarily sound C, E, G or whatever. Anything. It was a color. It was a color. And like, I would use it like uh, it, I'd be soloing and then I hit it. And so that escalated the sound of the soul. That's how I used it. You know, everybody uses them different. But then he kept talking to me about the digital delays, you know. So, the, so I borrowed one, it had two seconds. Drip, drip, drip you know that's it and that was that became too obvious you know then i got the next one was the jam man no i forget what it was but it had four seconds boop boop you know it was i wanted longer and then finally then there was one that had 16 and then the jam man was like forget it you know so i have the loop station now but i mostly use it live to it's becomes 
as opposed to, you know, I make pieces. That's why I've got to send you this solo piece. The solo CD is just me, but I use my electronics. So you might, you don't know what's going on. And this piece, this, this first text that I did, sometimes, sometimes I wonder, I had also had a four track. Before I had the delay, I had a four track cassette thing. And I still have this. I made this thing. It was kind of, ended up being kind of a drone, but it was had fifths in it, and and then I would make uh, improvise over it. I still have it to this day. I got it in my machine. Made it on a cassette thing, you know. So that that I have saved. So that might pop out at any time. And this Ostinato seven eight thing, but it's definitely Steve Reich related, right? These little melodies that I wrote, but over the Ostinato, you know. It, so. Anyway, I'm blabbing on, but but well, composition. But when, once again, now I might do a concert, and I may do a standard. The next thing is totally free. The next thing comes a sting. That's more like world music. But was I looking to make world music? No, I, I'm, it's what I heard. It's what I was, you know, if I was listening to that stuff, you know, then I, it comes out, and you're in your playing, you know. You know, I. I... I agree that um, <clears throat> we're just sort of synthesizing everything that we've experienced and everything that we loved and, and all the sounds that we grew up with and, and even the things that are just getting, we're getting turned on to now. Um, but I, I've noticed this, this trend in your work and especially recordings of multiple Jay Clayton voices. And one project in particular that I just was knocked out by was uh, you and Kirk Nurok did settings of the Emily Dickinson poetry. And it's just such a special recording. And, and I told Kirk, I just absolutely adore it. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that project? Because I think it's yeah. just something people have to hear. And they won't under, you know, uh, he, he was the magician in that in the end. He was the magician. So what we did was we, you know, Kirk and I go way back and we, nothing ever came He's very particular, by the way, about everything. So just know that. And he wouldn't mind by saying it. Just keep it off the books. I'm talking about, so we have, oh, we, I know. for 40 years, whatever, we've been playing together. You know how I, you know how I, I, I met him? I didn't know. It was because, <clears throat> because I was doing these vocal things, you know, like free, and, uh, and I had, and I was, uh, I did a thing for B, WBAI. But anyway, one of my, uh, fellow musicians called me up one day. They said, turn on WBAI, turn on the radio. And he was doing his natural sound stuff. You know about that, right? Yes. And they said, and it, 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 I'm more coming from jazz improv, but I was doing similar things with acapella voices, but it was more in the jazz, you know, he was using non-singers actually to do that. And so right. I called him up and I said, uh, you know, we might have something in common. I didn't know he even played piano. And he lived in a loft. He was in Chelsea. I was in, you know, and so I went over there. <clears throat> I told him about my vocal pieces and I really liked it. And then he, he, I said, this pian grand piano. He said, let's just play some. And we just did free. So we had that. We could do that. He's one of the few people. But he also is a composer. So, you know, he has all this other stuff. Anyway, short story long, we... Uh, we recorded some very free playing in his little apartment. And then, of course, he had these beautiful songs. He put these art, they're like art songs to the actual poetry. So uh, there was both of it. And we recorded some of that. 
Now, what are we going to do with this? It's two seat. It's where do they meet? The the songs are like you know art songs, and the other stuff is oh let it go. You know you know I'm nobody, but whatever. So, to his credit, and and this was for a few years we had this. What are we going to? Should we put out two different things? One is totally free, and one is you know, and he took that stuff and put it in GarageBand. And made so he made those pieces. It's all it's me, you know. He didn't do anything to my voice and stuff. But what you heard was his combining somehow made that work, didn't it? It's He's beautifully kind of, arranged, yeah. Yeah, and then we then we had to go. What's first? What's second? Oh my God! We went back and forth for a long time, and finally made that sequence. And I do think it's a piece of art. I really do. But it's his final putting it together of all the stuff that we did organically, you know. And wow, isn't that? I'm so glad you have that, you know. Yeah, it's a, it's a special piece, and uh, she's important as a poet, isn't she? Yeah. Well, he the first time. Well, no, there's two. E. E. Cummings and her. The first time I got comfortable, you know, I loved text but I didn't want to contrive it. I, there's one thing in the 60s, there were a lot of bongos in poetry and you know, all that stuff. And, I pro, and I'm sure I did it. Uh, but I found that a lot of it to me didn't work. It was like using the sounds of those words, but I need, again, I need the meaning to come through. So I have to, I have to you know. So I started to memorize uh, uh, Emily and E.E. E. Cummings, some things, and I, it was better if they were short that you got the message, then you could fool around whatever, you know what we're talking about. And the first time that I felt good about it was in a workshop with Grinelli in Halifax, um, where we were playing free. And I said, I did the E. e. Cummings, let it go. And I knew it when I, it popped, I didn't plan it, let it go. And, and I knew that I finally got it. I was behind it. I was connected. And he he noticed. I it, he I did, he, later on he said, "Wow, that really worked." You see, what does it mean? Worked? Work? That's personal if it worked or not. But I knew what he was talking about. So so it's very. So what I tell singers, because a lot of singers are using text, but they're reading it or they're not. Or they say they distort the word so much. I don't know what the message, if I don't get the message, and that's me, and that's a personal thing. I don't care what, it, if I don't get the message, I'm, I, I don't know, I, I, you lose me, you know. So, so it has to be clear, and I use that in workshops, even singing the standards. They're singing, they think that we're, we, they think we're hearing their things, but they're not behind it. And the best compliment I ever got was I was actually at a, set, a real session years ago with Jack Wilkins, who I worked with a lot on guitar, and Mark Copeland and somebody else. We were just somebody's house. And I did Autumn Leaves. And after I said, and I like soloing on, of course, that's, you use that a lot, that's harmonically friendly. But the truth is, the best compliment was Jack Wilkins said, wow, Jay, I have played that with singers and Everything a million times. This is the first time I heard the lyrics. Autumn leaves, and so I, I, and I, all my singers work on it, but I said, but don't use because I was like that at first. I have to admit, in the early years of free music and standards, and I would some standards. Oh, that's corny. Well, guess what? Don't, then you can't sing it if you think that. 
You see what I'm saying? But I, I thought too, I'll just use those words for articulation. You know, No, you can't do it. You won't get past me. You won't get past me. I, I won't believe you. I have to believe you. I don't care if it's folk or whatever kind, you know. So you that's know interesting. Favorite. That's interesting too, because I know that from talking to the drummer, Lewis Hayes, that saxophonists like Dexter Gordon insisted that they could would sing the lyrics and know the lyrics of all of those songs to play them on the saxophone. He, yeah, he's the one that said, oh, I, oh, they stopped playing. He's the one, he stopped playing. And they said, what happened? He said, I, I forgot the lyrics. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's, it's, it's a good example. That's I a use great that example. my student because it's like, and you can tell, I mean, you, you know, like uh, uh, Bill Evans, um, God, I mean, Jesus, I always wanted to sing with Bill Evans. That's just unfair. But anyway, he, he um, even the bow, how, how instrumentalists treat certain songs, it doesn't mean you can't do a lot, you can't like Miles, you mean it might be fast, but it's sad. And I don't mean that, but I can kind of tell if they know the lyrics. And especially if you're working with the singer, you know, the good players that work with, or, who likes singers? I mean, might not even like a singer, but when they work with me, you can tell. You know, you can't do rubato without knowing what's going on, you know. But isn't that cool about it? Yeah, you're at, Grinelli knows a lot of songs. <laughs> yeah. We kid around. But it, it is interesting. Even if you don't know all the lyrics, you have to know the, what is it about? You know? Well, phraseology also comes into play, right? Because the, the idea of the first lyric being completed breath you know space and then what is phrasing there's a good question because i know singers that try to teach teach phrasing here's how i teach it you know when i sat in uh way years ago with that you know uh when i was saying with uh with uh um jackie byard he was so cool oh god you know we were just talking about jackie byard one of his students is a good friend of mine dave witham pianist from la and he just you know, we, we put on some Jackie Byard and listened to how amazing he was and how people don't really know that. So uh, yeah, Jackie Byard. No, he died too. It's what is, yeah, because he would, he would have other gigs and I would later on and I would go sit in and I even took a, I had the gall to take a, I went all the way out to Queens once to take a piano lesson with him. Cause see, I comp now, I learned it all myself cause I'm a classical thing, but, I, but through teaching, I, I can comp. Uh, I never have performed on piano, but I can comp. But so I went to a few teachers. I went one with him. He taught me the one, you know, one fingering, one, one, one. <laughs> and then I went to two other ones and then I had enough to just work with. But, but yeah, Jackie Byard. Anyway, I lost my thing again about why I was talking about Jackie Byard. Shoot, I'm sorry. I'll, it'll come back. I get excited, clearly. <laughs> It's well, a joy yeah. talking to you. Uh, let me ask you about looping, though. You mentioned looping. Oh, um, yeah, I got it. Yeah, yeah. The looping, I also uh, thought was so interesting in Jane Ira Bloom's work. And I know that you guys have, have made some music together. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, uh, here's how I met Joan, uh, uh, Jane in the, in the, let's see, must have been the 70s, late 70s, before I moved away. I lived, and I left Lisbonard because the got expensive, it got a name, Soho. Every time it got a name, we had to move. We ended up in, in Tribeca. When, once that got a move, once that got a name, we moved to Brooklyn because that 
the rents went up. But I was li living on Leonard and a block, and I found, I would always find places to work um, like once a week, because that's how I learned. I learned everything out there. And there was a place uh, uh, on uh, Greenwich Avenue, Prescott's it was called. And I was there every Tuesday night and I got paid, the, the guy at the, in the bar, he had a quota on his cash register and we got everything over the quota. I don't know. Actually, I think Cecil Taylor came down there once to hear me. Cecil would go out, you know. Oh, I did that hang. I know. <laughs> you know about Cecil. Cecil. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, I'm there one night and uh, Jane Ira Bloom walks in. This little, you know, talking with the blonde hair with the saxophone. You know, I mean, I say that because we we're women, you know, we know that. So even me, it was like, wow. So <laughs> she asked to sit in and that the rest was history. Because it was such, we, we had such, and then I was in her band. I did her music for a while. And then, of course, my first, the, the, after uh, uh, the, uh, the All Out, she's on. Because by that time, we had been playing, and, and that was the beauty of it. It was in and out. And so, yeah, it was great work. When I liked her tunes, I might revive some of them, because I have some of her pieces. I should revive them. I got too much repertoire not enough gigs i have a lot of good repertoire that are you know can jump right off into like you said because each piece has to have its, its own little world it's like in a, in a if you're doing standards I, I i'm very much i'm a set planner but i'm the first that would deviate too but i i used to wonder about that because the cats you know i don't know did they plan they just called sometimes they didn't even call the key you know they'd be playing you must know have experienced I yeah. yeah, we, you know, and that, that was part and parcel of the thing. And, and, you know, I had a friend that was playing with Ahmad Jamal and, and, you know, those modulations would just happen and you had to move, you know, so this is not rehearsed. I mean, I guess it's like we all rehearse so that we can be loose. We yep. all practice so that we can get to that point where we really are free to move in directions where the music is going so that we have a, a kind of flow. You know, we want to create an experience, right? We, we don't want it to just be uh, us letting, you know, all of our feelings hang out. It's not that. It's, it's more focused than it's that. Like one piece. You know, it's, if, if, if it gets stagnant, if it, there's no change at all. And I'm so into it. I, I, I talk to my, uh, I work like that and privately with them. Where we end up planning a set, planning a set, planning a set. Yeah. Do you have enough ingredients? Actually, Jane used that term. There's these ingredients in a set. In any kind of piece, sometimes it's melodic, sometimes it has time, sometimes there's space. And so you learn to do that on the spot, you know. But I am a set planner. Um, I was always curious about, uh, all, everybody's different. You know, what I'd be, be getting these groups, do they plan or they no plan? And Oregon was, uh, I was very close to them. I always use them example. I, they had a great little system because I'm, I, I, I'm totally into it. And maybe I have a formula for mine, who cares? But I know that I, I know the opening piece is very important, but it's different every night, how do I feel? But they used to have this little felt thing. They would put the, maybe I'll do this. I should do this anyway, within a group thing, if you're gonna plan it together. They had the names and they would, you know, they would move instead of writing, you know. I thought that was great. I use index cards. Oh, and so you have the titles on each one? Yeah, I do index cards and I move them around. Well, that's just, that's, that's great, you know. And so, um, yeah, I, I, 
I'll tell you, I'm curious, you know, one of my other big deals, maybe, maybe you have it, maybe you don't know, in my life was when Muhal Richard Abrams, uh, you know, I don't know if you have that uh, album. It's called well, I wanted to talk about Muhal since, you know, we lost him fairly recently too. Uh -huh. And he was so important, even to guys like me, growing up, listening to the AACM, and emulating a number of principles, first of all, the DIY, and you know, you go out and, and you are you are your whole package and you promote yourself and you have to work on yourself. You have to do a solo concert. You have to be able to play solo. I, I remember that was a Muhal tenant. Uh, so uh, I studied with Andrew Cyril and Steve McCall and, and just through that association was able to get a taste of how important Muhal was to all those guys. Uh, please tell me a little bit about Muhal. Well, the first time I, uh, of course I was, I did obviously I'm in the 60s, I mean, I knew about the Chicago Art Ensemble and all that stuff, but I went to, um, he, he gave a, a lecture in the, I think it might've been downstairs at the venue. I don't know, they had this little series and all I remember is he just spoke and there was something he said that I, it just stuck. And I started listening to his stuff. I did. I hadn't really met him, but he he was just talking about don't mix music and money and just the whole just do it. It was just so true blue. And then uh, I didn't think anything of it. And uh, I in the I guess this was also in the 70s was very important for my you know there was a big that that decade was fantastic late 60s and 70s. So I don't know if you knew Kobe Narita of the Universal Jazz Coalition. Now this is somebody you must look up. She, she just had this little, uh, uh, I was working in an office once and this little envelope came by and it was like universal, I was opening mail, and it was like, Universal Jazz Coalition. Oh my God, what's that? You know, and I, ah, so I looked it up and I looked her up. She used to present concerts. Anyway, she, we, she would work with the artists a lot. She was wonderful, she's alive, she's in her 90s. Making flyers, she did so much. You must know about her. You have to look her up. So anyway, she got this gig on Third Avenue at a place called the Blue Hawaii every weekend, and she put me in there. I could I could work with it. Here was what fifty dollars. You could do a trio, fifty dollars each, guaranteed. I mean that you know, wow, you know, best food. I had to borrow clothes to do the gig, but I could do it with anybody I wanted. John Abercrombie, you know, uh, all the best, you know. And Muhal showed up. He showed up at my gig, and then and and uh, uh, and I was just doing you know mostly standards, but whatever. I'm I'm always have my. I by that time I had whatever the heck I'm doing. I was in there, you know. <laughs> so all I remember it was I had two kids by then, and uh, my ex was a drummer, you know, Frank Clayton, and we. We were together, but we had a loft. We were in that the loft in Brooklyn, I think it was. And I just remember, I'll never forget, it was significant. I was laying in bed. It was one of those times and I'm like, I can't do this like this anymore. You know, it was one of those times. And the phone rang and it was Muho. And he asked me to do a gig at the public theater. Remember, they used to do them I after. Did. Yes. Me, J.D. Perrin, Chico Freeman, George Lewis. Muhal, oh my God, the best, the best of the free, and me. Do you know what that does? I mean, how, how important that could be to me, a chick singer, you know, white. I'm sorry, I mean, it was all in there. I had all of that stuff. But this Muhal heard me, 
he heard what the heck I was doing. And he hired me to do that. And then we recorded in record after. So he is significant. As a matter of fact, maybe you were there in when he turned 80, he invited me and Marty Ehrlich and, and what's his name, the bass player and a couple other people to do with a concert. I mean, I, I, you see how excited I get? I'm saying that because that's not usual. You don't, you know, all those fantastic players that play with him. So he, but he, he always said he wished he had a, he said he wished he had another instrument to play with me because he felt that the piano was confining <laughs> for what I, and anyway, so he, he is important. He was the father of all that stuff. And, and I, and I still, I would go every time I could hear him and his solo stuff, right? You know what I'm talking I, yeah, about. Yeah. And my buddy, uh, Brad Jones played bass for him for many years. And, uh, you know, he, he was a conceptualist and he was a force yeah. and a force for creative musicians to take it and bring it out and, and not be so insular in a way too, to, to be part of society with that, the most abstract things. Right. Absolutely. And he believed that. I believe if you have to do your own music, you do your own. Of course he did. He was with black, whatever that Italian label for a while, but basically he was saying, if you have to do it, you do it. You, you do, you put your, your music out, you know, and, and it's, it's you, still met him. True. <laughs> He's such a gentle person. He was just so, it was so important for my self-esteem even because yeah. he was, well, what are you talking about? You, oh man. You know, like he heard it and he, but he wasn't uh, pretentious, nothing. He just did his thing. And I, I, I can't remember to be honest with you. I don't know why he died. Did he get, I don't know, remember, it just seemed like a shock to me when he left, because he, he didn't flaunt whatever being sick, he must have had something. I don't even know, you know. Just no, I know. Even Paul Motion, the same thing. He didn't tell anybody, he was just gone, right. you know. Yeah, it's just what, and Jean, even Jean Lee, I mean, she was in Europe, she, we didn't know much. So yeah, that's what, I think, you know, that's the way people prefer to do it and that's their choice obviously right absolutely absolutely jay you know it's just such a pleasure talking to you but before we split i i know that you've got sort of a new release of an older trio uh recording from you know, 2012 with ed neumeister and uh, fritz power and right. i listened to some of that that's a really cool project i i that's what we're doing now in other words ed uh, I don't know if you knew about Fritz Power, but he was like the Viennese piano player. In yeah. other words, he played in and out. He was so great. And we, we happened to teach in Graz. That's how we got together. And I think I wrote it on thing, but it's like, in other words, uh, after we would teach, they would come to my room. I said, let's just play, you know. And then we set up a concert. And then we blah, blah, blah. We did a little tour. And then, um, and I was the catalyst, but they were, but it was a cooperative group, in other words. So uh, then be before the last semester I did was 20 years ago. That's, that's 20 years old. I'm sure that's 20 years old, that thing. But it doesn't matter. I think it's, anyway. So we, uh, Ed and, and uh, Fritz said, let's go into a studio and just record. And thank God, because then Fritz died of a heart attack. You know, just again, you don't know. It's like, you didn't know it was unexpected. And so we had that and we sort of made some, you know, I think Ed's wife made a cover, but it never was published or anything. And then uh, a few months ago, 
just before this all happened, Ed said, we should put, Ed moved back to New York. Ed's in New York, you know. He said, let's put this out. I'm, I have a label. Let's put it out. I mean, Sunnyside might have put it out, but this, this was fine. It's his label. And now he, we want to do it. So we did three li uh, live streams. That was the third that I sent to you, you know. Yeah, and but yeah. what? But we chose Gary, and it was one of those. There's so many wonderful piano players. That did, but there's something I've known. I knew Gary. He he's younger. He he was in Portland when I was in Seattle, and I knew he was great. And I hear him all the time. And uh, so Ed brought him up, and that was it. That was the first one I was going to. We said, "Who oh, can?" There's so many, and so that's it's compatible so far. It's very compatible, you know. So people are able to see your streaming concerts. How, Jay? Well, it's too late now, I think. Um, if there's someone I need to, I have uh, links to a couple of them. So for people that I want, like friends and stuff, I just, like I sent you the link to that. That's it. Because that's the one thing you get when you do these live streams, you get the video and that's good. And we can use it. So what we're going to do, you know, and, and Ed's high tech more than me. He can put things together, you know. Are you going and, to do more of those? Yeah, well, we're, um, yeah, whatever we can. The next thing we have is um, at Maureen's in Nyack, which I've never been there, but, I, but it's small. But at, she would just had, uh, they, they stopped because of this surge. But I think maybe by January, it may op be open again. So we're going to do that, you know. And we're looking. We, the, main, the main thing is to do a tour in Europe, and that's all stopped now. The Europeans, I think, would really like this, you know. But again, the repertoire is who we are. We can do anything, in and out. And that's where I live. I'm sure that's where you live, too. It's the best place to be, isn't it? It is. It, and it's, it's, it, and it's developmental for many years. And a lot of, a lot of uh, people stop doing it. But for me, it's so, it's composition. You're a composer. Well, this is the thing, Jay, and, and, and having been a, a young person growing up in the, in the climate of you guys doing all of those different things, that I'm still interested in chamber music and classical music and <clears throat> studied all of the composition stuff and then also did jazz and then also did percussion music. And so I'd never felt limited because I, you guys weren't modeling that. You were saying it's all on the table, youngster, go, you know, go for it. And I'm I wanted so to tell you that means a lot. Well, it means a lot to me. And, and I think uh, even what I'm doing, and again, there's some people that were not able to study with me and they, you know, you're a handful. And so someone in DC, she always won. And here we go. But I do this free stuff with even some, but some people never even heard it, you know, but it's, I said, it just, just sing, kids do it you know, and somehow it connects them, I think. I'm just saying in, in, to end that why free music? You can, you can do a tune without even being there, be honest with you, some singers are. You can do it, you got the beautiful melody, you're singing and I'm like, I don't believe you, but you're there and that's great, you have a nice voice. But truthfully, to start from scratch, to compose, you, you gotta be there. You got no, no line that somebody wrote, you got no, you know, and then it pulls that out and that connection of of how you feel i don't know which one oh is that sad or i mean it's not like that it's not as simple transfers when you're doing a song 
the connection of being there does. And I can only do it through, you know, and there's some young singers, they never did it. And pretty soon they're totally into it. I haven't record something that I tell them like that 410 to play it back and sing free. So there you go. Keep, we keep inventing things to, to evoke whoever they are. Being allowed to be who you are. It's the bottom line. It really is. Because even singers, they can think, I want to do, I said, you are already what you are. You, you are, you have your own voice. Don't look for anything. Just keep singing things you love. You said it, you know, you have a path. If you, if you don't love it, you're not going to learn on it. Okay. So do whatever you want. You know. I, I just had a, a, a student today. She wants to do at last, you know, I did a whole CD on Harry Warren, who wrote all these tombs. Nobody knows he wrote at last. Nobody knows that he wrote "There'll Never Be Another You." So I called Harry Who, but I, I said I didn't do that song forever because at Etta James, I don't want to, you know that. And because she, she said, "Oh, I want to sing this," and I, I got this backtrack, and it's from Etta James. I said, "Don't, don't, do not listen to her another. You know, just sing it." And I want her to be who she is, and she can. You know, she can. You're right on. We are individuals. It's it's uh it's the the pleasure of being an individual that I guess is its own reward. But you know, we do have to encourage young people and and you certainly have and, and you are just a model of individualism, Jay, Jay Clayton. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, uh, this has just well, been a blast. Continue or continue. I wanna you know, I'll be looking at interviews, but stay in touch. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, Jay. And, okay. and thank you to everybody for, for listening and, and all of the support that we've been getting for these talks. And please like and subscribe and check out Jay Clayton at jayclayton.com. All of her activity and music is there. You can stay in touch with her. Jay, thank you so much. And You're so welcome well. to be continued. Happy holidays. You too. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Bye.